microphone check one two what is this it's the five foot seven assassin in the podcast business and we're back with another episode of QLC TV. My name is Rohan and I'm the host of this lovely show where I aim to give you authentic insight into the world of music, which will be a primary focus as it's my absolute utmost passion in the world. I just love music. I'll also be talking about politics, culture, sports, as well as personal topics related to growing into adulthood. As all of this is delivered from the perspective of a 25-year-old Indian man living in Canada, trying to make sense of not only myself, but of the world. So all in all, I thank you so much for listening and taking part in this creative journey that I'm embarking on with QLC TV. And I just hope that this platform will not only give myself, but give those listening something nice to look forward to when they wake up in the morning because if i achieved that then i've succeeded hi everybody this is a monday august 31st and i have a great show for us today first i'll be starting with a review of the new nas album king's disease then i'll be moving into a bit of a reflection on what i've been thinking what's been going through my mind during this pandemic, during this COVID quarantine. And then I'll finish off by quickly touching on the the NBA restart times two, where they initially striked and then eventually decided to, to restart the season and get back to the playoffs. So starting with this Nas album, where he collaborated with Hit Boy, a very interesting producer, uh, because he's he's definitely on the younger side, and his traditional sound is not something that people would immediately associate with a veteran act like Nas. Now, right off the bat, when I heard of this collaboration coming about three weeks prior to the album coming out, when Hitboy posted on his Twitter a little teaser video for this, I was I was definitely pretty confused. Nothing about Hit Boy's music and his style immediately jumped out at me that said, oh, Nas would sound great on this. But seeing that they had previously worked together on this track off of a, a collab album that's Dom Kennedy and Hit Boy, Half a Mill, uh, they have a track called City on Lock, and it's actually a good song. They're, the style of Hit Boy's production here works nice because... Hitboy is an interesting producer because he can he can blend a lot of modern sounds, modern drumming in particular, with some soul, with some occasional samples that, that makes me think, okay, you know, on second thought, Nas could potentially work with this. Uh, so seeing that they had previously worked together, I was hoping that this would prove to be a sign that this collaboration would truly be organic. Uh, and not seem forced, like the collaboration with Kanye on 2018's Nazir, where although I stand by the production being very excellent, Nas was noticeably not up to his usual high standard on many of these tracks. On Nazir, it seemed like Nas wasn't working from a comfortable state. Nas strikes me as an artist who really likes to take time with his music and really meticulously reiterate or revise his raps and all of that so this approach that Kanye took 
in those 2018 Wyoming sessions where he would create those seven track albums, seven tracks for the most part, and would create these albums in incredibly immense time pressures where it seemed like he was mixing and editing the album like right before it would drop on streaming platforms, which is exactly what happened. It makes sense that Nas wouldn't necessarily fit that approach like a glove. Kanye was all into that spur of the moment, just do things or get like, yeah, spur of the moment and and see what happens. And and that's going to be the truest expression. And that's fine. That's it. That is an approach that you can take. And some people like that. But I think Nas came across instead of sounding really authentic and in the moment, he just came off confused and scattered on a lot of these a lot of these songs didn't seem inspired didn't seem well thought out it was clear that his rapping suffered i think largely because of that approach that kanye took with that uh, with that album nazir so this project with hitboy it seems like he was this was an album that he took a lot more time with and built it out with hitboy in a speed and in a manner that he liked so going back to Hit Boy, because the collaboration aspect of this is, is really key. And to understand that, we need to understand more about who Hit Boy is. So for whatever reason, after having some absolutely major hits in 2011 to about 2013, most notably Paris off of Watch the Throne, that was an absolute banger, immensely popular. And then that backseat freestyle track on Kendrick Lamar's uh, Good Kid, Mad City, and Click off of that Cruel Summer Good Music compilation album that was amazing. So even with those hits, he never really seemed to fully solidify himself uh, along with his contemporary producers that did, in fact, do this such as Metro Boomin, Zaytoven, Boy Wanda. Like, his sound was trappy and modern, surely. Uh, and like I mentioned before, his, his beats did have an element of soul and occasionally had sampling that, that I thought would make him very versatile to not only the, the mainly young trap artists that were really popping at that time. I, I personally think that maybe he didn't pop simply because he didn't have enough strong relationships or strong collaborative relationships at least with big rappers boy wanda had drake nothing more to be said about that metro boomin zaytoven they both had future yet here was hit boy who never really seemed to have a dependable partner in crime that could really make hits with the boy i have to say but here we are seven-ish years after that time frame that I was speaking of between 2011 and 2013, here is Hit Boy with legacy act legend Nas. And overall, I think the collaboration was very truly real. It seemed like Nas was comfortable, and it seemed like Hit Boy really crafted this album with a lot of care. Overall, the production here on King's Disease is is less adventurous than that on Nazir. 
it's definitely a cleaner sound too in the mixing uh, which makes me certainly miss some of the dirtier and more bolder musical choices that Kanye chose on Nazir but even if the production is maybe less creative uh, it still allows for Nas to feel more comfortable and that's what you really go for with a Nas project it's his rapping it's always the main course so I think that the production leaning on the safe side is a better call if it makes for a better Nas performance. But again, the production still has a nice lavish quality. These aren't some generic beats or anything like that. Uh, there's some really nice beat switches too that, that keep the sound fresh, never stale. Um, so the, the de- album didn't challenge Nas musically as much as the predecessor Nasir. And he sounds more comfortable. And I think this makes sense because Nas doesn't ever seem to be picking throughout his career instrumentals that clash with his vocals. Like I'm thinking of tracks like White Label of Nasir that was very chaotic in the sampling in the background. And I got the impression and that it showed in his performance because he came off kind of lazy and aimless at times on that song. So I think that's why, historically, he's opted for more simplistic beats, which have inevitably drawn a lot of criticisms. Often criticism with Nas is he doesn't pick good beats. So the relative safeness of this album musically understandably makes an artist like Nas more comfortable because he's never been known for being the most versatile artist. He's by no means like a ghost face who could rap on just about any kind of beat, any kind of rhythm, any kind of sound. But all this being said, Hitboy didn't once again create basic beats. I do not want to be coming off like I'm making that point. These are very classy instrumentals that have a lot of nice details and intricacies that really come off well. As I mentioned, they're clean, it's modern, but they complement Nas's signature buttery smooth delivery. There's some soulful sampling, particularly on the first track, which I, I love. There's a modern sound in the drumming, but it's still boom bappy for the most part, um, with some actual trap instrumentals towards the middle part of this album. Yet the soul is kept in with some great jazz flourishes, uh, tasteful horns. You can even hear that in the trap songs. 27 Summers, an absolute banger, one of my favorite songs on the album. The way Nas starts his verses with bitch, it just gets me going every time. It's it's so infectious. Overall, the song, I love his flow, the energy. It's so strong. A really good, really good track. Even on that song, there's these nice horns that come in throughout the end that really add a nice touch. Ultra blacks, shimmering keys that come in and out of the beat. Really beautiful. The Cure, the final track on the album beautiful way to end this album the electric guitar added this epic quality to the track you know a side note about that i feel like i've been programmed for some weird reason to not use the word epic ever since it was abused by young nerds uh in the last decade but but sometimes that word just really accurately portrays something so i stand by that truly epic quality to the track the cure but that beat switch with that haunting vocal sample 
at the back half of The Cure was marvelous and definitely my favorite moment on the whole album. Nas is on that traditional boom-bap drumming pattern and he kills it. Really nice way, really felt like an ending that was worthwhile. The drumming on All Bad was incredible. And at this point, Anderson Pack is just a cheat code. The most versatile artist I can think of can make a hit with just about anybody. Uh, so moving on to the subject matter, it was definitely more solid and more substantive than what was presented on Nazir. Whereas Nazir had some moments of interesting content, even when it was interesting, it was really it was the conspiratorial in a kind of a dumb way, not in an interesting way, or it was actually some stuff I don't support, like anti-vax, like, like, oh my God, can we stop doing that in 2020? Please, I beg you, please. <sighs> so yeah, the subject matter often covered black empowerment, uh, you know, good business advice, uh, the black family, black women in particular. That was a, a particular focus on this album that I noticed on multiple tracks, particularly Till the War is One with Lil Durk, Ultra Black, which is all about being proud to be black, songs reflecting on his path to greatness and the troubles and demons that he has at his perch in the rap game. But I did find that there was still a bit of a lack of depth and real nuance in the topics that he covered, particularly the songs about women and women empowerment, because it came off just a little bit too on the nose in light of recent allegations that have come forward against Nas as it relates to his relationship with Khalees and being abusive towards her. Like at one point on Till the War is One, he references coward men beating women, and then in the background, the ad-libs, never me. And it it just, just comes off a little inauthentic, a little too reactionary, and just directly makes me think about those allegations when he says that. So either you address the allegations with real depth instead of a, an ad-lib, or you just leave it alone and don't really touch that subject because it will just ring hollow. And, you know, overall, call me a PC soy boy if you want. But I don't obviously know what happened with Khalees for sure. But those allegations seem believable. So they make the more, particularly with the women, part, empowerment parts. But even past that, it makes more of the socially conscious parts of this album come off a bit hollow, come off a bit empty, makes me question them, question the validity, the sincerity of it. And you know, honestly, he may very well genuinely mean all of these things. Do not beat women, uplift our black women, uh, I'm black and I'm proud, all this and that great stuff. He may very well mean these things and just simply be a hypocrite in his own life. But it still takes away from that feeling that I get or that I should get from content like this. I prefer the content from Nas that sticks to speaking on his status in hip hop, being a hip hop legend, 
from the projects, the nostalgic elements reflecting on his younger days. Excellent braggadocio, particularly on tracks like 27 Summers, where it's just fun. He's just flexing his rapping skills and all of his achievements. Or, again, at the very least, just don't touch the women part so specifically because, again, if you're not going to address it, you're not going to give something that does that topic justice. Just leave it alone. So tracks like Ultra Black that are dealing very specifically in just being black, being proud of that, being very celebratory, uh, That those songs go over well because it doesn't need to be all that nuance it doesn't need to get into the nitty-gritty of all these issues so the track works in that way and with the production and the hook and Nas's flow and the lyricism it really really comes off well in one of the standouts on the album and then car 85 that trades all of that social commentary for just pure nostalgia talking about this neat little kind of deal they had with a specific car I think it's probably a taxi driver uh, back in the days in Queensbridge New York and all of the memories he had towards that the Charlie Wilson hook is so soulful the the beats so soulful that's also one of the best songs and that's where this album works the best for me but overall my feeling is that I do like this album quite a bit because it, it's very well put together even the poppy tracks like replace me is really nice there's some great twinkly keys in the production there's a catchy hook from don tolliver and even big sean came through with a solid guest verse the firm reunion track ditches their typical mafioso street rap content for a song about relationships that actually comes over very very surprisingly well a uh, nice Stevie Wonder flip in the instrumental. I, I believe it's Stevie Wonder. And adds a lot of soul and elegance. Uh, I do wish that they would have cut those tracks in the middle. Particularly Till the War is one. I like the song. But again, the subject matter, as I mentioned before, doesn't work for me fully. And the little Dirk part was just unnecessary. I, I, don't, really, I don't really understand his ne- necessity on that track. And I would have would have liked that they replaced it with uh, more of that soul sound that was used in the, the first track. Because that really worked nicely. But, you know, overall, compared to, to, to Nazir, I think this is a better album. It doesn't match the highs of the infectious Adam and Eve on that track or the beauty of everything from Nazir. The, everything being the song, just so you guys are clear about that. But the cohesiveness of this record in terms of the production, the subject matter being pretty consistent and the theme coming through pretty consistently, albeit not as in-depth and nuanced as I'd like, still comes through well, comes through very focused. Uh, that's probably the biggest improvement compared to Nazir is that focus and is the comfort and skill that Nas puts on display. And... It all comes together in a nice main body of the album. That's a neat 36 minutes, a perfect clean the bathroom type length. And I really appreciate that. Even the bonus track is a nice added spice. <laughs> it's called spicy, just saying. So it that ends the album off on a nice note. It's a really fun track. So in conclusion, I give Nas's King Disease 
a 7.7 on 10. Overall, this is a very solid contemporary album from a legacy act that is showing off the what the new school and the old school has to offer. I think this is Nas's most well-rounded effort when it comes to subject matter, variety of sounds. And for Hit Boy, with King's Disease, it shows that he can really create a front-to-back album, sit down with an artist, and create something that's focused, that makes sense thematically, showing that he isn't just a producer that can only do singles. So it's a nice notch in his tool belt, albeit I would have liked something a little more adventurous. I think overall he serviced the artist first and created an album that really made sense with what Nas is comfortable with and still displaying enough color and detail in the production to make it pop. So really solid effort from both of them. So now I'll move on to the second topic I wanted to cover which is what's been on my mind during this COVID pandemic. So throughout this time during the COVID quarantine, our new normal, as what some would say, it has given people a lot more time to reflect, myself included. I have spent a ton of time self-reflecting and finding things in my personality and my character that I don't like, some things that I need to change mainly that I often shy away too much from confrontation and that I am sometimes afraid to speak the truth because I'm scared of the consequences, whether they be consequences towards myself or towards other people. I also recognize that in a global pandemic, being able to work remotely as a knowledge worker, being able to get a solid paycheck in a time like this, in a country that has, again, for the most part, reasonably manage the amount of COVID cases while my Indian homeland is currently being ravaged, it has me given it has given me a much needed reality check that I truly am a lucky person. I have also recognized that not only did my once inseparable group of friends from high school and university time drift apart, but that I am actually okay with much of the drifting simply because you know it's due to having other priorities seeing people take their natural separate paths as we all do as you grow older and become adults so the fact that i actually don't need that constant uh, time with all of these friends that i used to spend much more time with i find that interesting i find that actually does speak to a maturity that i'm growing inside of me which is that I can be content just being by myself or just being with my girlfriend and not needing that at all times obviously I still need my friends and I have them but just that change is definitely a unique shift for me a notable shift for me but the most noteworthy thing that has come to my mind during this time and what I want to dive into specifically today is that I feel like there's been a internal spark that has been growing and growing over these past few months that has had me re-examine many things in my life most notably where I want to be what I want to be doing as it relates to my full-time job I enjoy it it was not about that 
it was about all of the surrounding hours that I filled being lazy, being unhealthy, not pursuing things that I actually enjoy doing simply because I didn't prioritize or time manage myself good enough. And also it's the, unfortunately, because this is not, it's not all positive what I'm going to be talking about, but it's the, it's the constant comparison, that tendency to compare myself with others that I know I do too much. Seeing, seeing friends like my friend Deepak, who's got a podcast I mentioned in the first episode of this show, of being a big inspiration to me actually getting started with this. Seeing how he not only has built a, a very successful podcast, but being able to venture into starting his own business and just overall seeing how much more productive and happy he is. It really inspired me to start seriously looking at myself and starting to make some changes. This means I want to start adopting rituals. I'm trying to think about kind of better morning routines, starting to look at a side hustle and see where that takes me. It doesn't need to be something that eventually be becomes my full-time job at all because, like I said, I like my job quite a bit. But it's just being able to use that spare time I have to do something that's not only productive, but I'm passionate about that actually fulfills me. And just overall live with more intent, be more thoughtful with my time. I want to bring that same level of rigor and care that I would bring to something in my actual full-time job where I'm implementing a project where I'm planning all this and that, thinking things through, being strategic. I'm good at that stuff. So I want to be able to bring that to the rest of my life. And throughout this quote-unquote awakening, if you want to call it that, I found myself looking at other people further along in their journey, as I mentioned earlier, and comparing myself. And this constant tendency has made it really clear to me that I really need to come to grips with what I want to do, what I think is right, fully. Because without that, I will continue to be swayed and influenced from others, get put off my path that I should be going down, and will continuously make me feel this level of angst and anxiety and and, and just kind of discontent with my own life that I've been feeling recently I need to find a way to ground myself in myself if I actually want to to continue in a healthy healthy manner so to do this I need to and I've started to be more thorough in intentional reflection to really think about what I want to do what I want to create and I think that's the first step and I use the word create very specifically and intentionally here because for a long time, I've been really into a lot of different kinds of things that I never was directly taking part in, namely music and overall art. And I, I simply started to believe that I was just destined to be a consumer, never a creator whether it be related to some kind of business or, or art. But I started to realize during this time of COVID that I simply wasn't being authentic with myself, 
when I said this to myself. Because when I close my eyes and envision a dream moment, it always involves me being creative, uh, particularly with music. I always love just kind of fantasizing about being a producer who produced this amazing beat for this amazing rapper, uh, creating, composing an instrumental for this amazing pop song, performing this music in front of my friends, in front of my loved ones, and in front of random strangers, seeing them be all impressed with me, thinking, oh my god, look at this guy, look how successful he is, look how amazing of an artist he is. Or my personal favorite, being a successful manager for a rapper, slash also having the ear for music who made some of the beats on the debut album that everybody loves. Or I'm the successful manager for in a different kind of genre of artist uh, where I get to fantasize about thinking, oh, my taste level in music and my, my love for music actually translated into finding and cultivating talent and then my business side of myself actually was able to make us successful in the industry. Yes, these fantasies are very detailed, I am very aware, but that's all to say is that I had to be authentic with myself, that being a creator was something that I clearly wanted to be, clearly something that I desired deep down inside of myself. So deferring to not creating was a risk-averse cop-out. It was me just not wanting to be uncomfortable and really try and potentially and definitely fail. And that's something I wanted to stop doing. So the first step in this positive direction has luckily brought us together, seeing me carve out time every week to produce this show. So now here I am, and almost six months into the quarantine, now starting to get into the groove of putting out QLC TV episodes and trying to find ways overall to live with more intent. I've started to schedule my time, even my personal time on my phone. I thought that's helped. But at the same time, I found myself in, in conflict with this new outlook on my life, this new desire to be productive and to really take control and live every moment with intent. Because I'm, I find I'm, I'm often caught between thinking, you know, if I don't own this super nice Mercedes-Benz and be able to travel around the world luxuri luxuriously, if I'm not pursuing every single life ambition that I've ever had, then I'm not living a good enough life in that me not pursuing that is me just giving up. But then I have a very reasonable other side to myself that says, you know, I'm totally okay with not being super ambitious and, and trying to achieve all these crazy things, I'm pretty content with a more quote-unquote normal life. I'm, I'll, I'd be totally fine with working a stable job, affording my necessities with some, some nice uh, discretionary expenses from time to time and make about 60-70k a year and be happy. Because, you know, believe it or not, before I moved out and graduated, my main aspirations began and ended with simply getting into a relationship with someone I love, which I have achieved that, so I'm happy about that. I also wanted just a simple, stable job that could 
help me pay my rent and make me be able to afford some cool, nice things from time to time, but nothing crazy. And then the other was just getting some nice speakers and apartment that I rented. That's it. So once I got that in 2018 and achieved that, I coasted on that for quite a while. You know, that time I felt so innocent. I felt so content because I had reached this goal of mine at such an early age. I was only 23. But then the inevitable angst set in. Because you can only be satisfied with a goal-setting state of mind, if that's how your state of mind is, for so long. It's like, I, I compare it to beating the only video game that you own, and then having nothing else to do afterwards. Eventually, that aimlessness will turn into something more negative, And you'll begin either aspiring, yearning for something else, and then, again, feeling like you are lesser than and you need to achieve and you need to find a way to make yourself feel whole again. And that's kind of where I found myself over these past few months. Except I'm trying to balance that goal setting, that that striving to be better, to grow, with also trying to balance that with being more healthy in the way that I achieve it, that's more sustainable and that's more positive and mindful and not just trying to achieve for superficial reasons. I want to make sure I'm constantly reevaluating my state of mind to ensure that I'm not trying to achieve things just because I feel like I have to, otherwise I'm a waste of life. You know, so I hope throughout this show... I'll be able to continuously share my journey with you, the listener, and document what I've learned and experienced from a perspective that I think is a is at least a bit unique in this in that self-help personal development space, at least from what I've encountered. I've come to realize that that there's this gap in much of the self-help talk that I've seen where it neglects the circumstances, or at the very least doesn't frame much of the content and advice around the context of people's potential real-world struggles that make it difficult to prosper, and instead paints any acknowledgement of hardship as a victim mentality. And, you know, I think there is so much power in striking that balance where the self-help can be given within the context of actual realities being acknowledged. Because even just from a messaging perspective, more people would be moved by something that gives them real positive practical advice, but also doesn't remove their dignity and belittle their real life circumstances as being inconsequential. So in future episodes, when I further discuss topics of self-development and what I've been going through recently, I hope it comes across as someone that is acknowledging those real-life circumstances, whatever it be, mental health kind of circumstances, that make it hard for someone to really be their best at all times because it'll be coming from my perspective of someone who definitely struggles with that. So I hope I'll be able to give you something unique 
and something that you can truly kind of take from and, and use in your own life in a more practical and more realistic manner. And I think this idea dovetails with a lot of how I see politics and current events. It's that marriage between personal capability, recognizing the immense power one does truly have to find happiness, develop positive, productive practices and mindsets that generally people do not realize. I am fully aware people don't come to grips with this as much as they should. But also keeping in mind that, and therefore demanding that, societies address the conditions that genuinely make it difficult for someone to prosper in the first place. You know, take the example that is often trot out in the corporate media of that poor, marginalized person who managed to overcome immensely difficult circumstances, worked like five jobs to become a success through hard work and positivity. This is often painted as a success story. We so often fetishize the parent who worked multiple jobs, jobs, worked every minute of their life in order to build a life that let their kids get an education and live. It's always painted as this beautiful success story. And it is, but only for that individual. Because in reality, the fact that this person had to develop a level of mindfulness, work ethic, and an overall mindset that is in the 1% in order to just simply get by and achieve, it's actually an indictment on the society and all of us in this world. We cannot and should not applaud a society that demands people in unfavorable conditions adopt such incredible levels of good habits and work ethic just to get a bit of success. There has to be a happy medium that allows for people to just be decent, regular, ordinary human beings and succeed. Lastly, I'm going to talk about and transition to this NBA restart, take two. So, for those that are unaware, the NBA canceled their season, not canceled, paused their season in March amidst the inception of this COVID pandemic, as did all the other major sport leagues. And they decided on this very interesting idea where they would all get together at Disney World in these bubbles or in this bubble singular bubble and all the players and and necessary personnel would be there and they would not be able to allowed to leave until they are eliminated from the playoffs and overall this idea has been executed brilliantly it is honestly quite incredible how they've done it the presentation of the games and the overall intensity of the games. I'm not a mega, mega NBA fan, but I am certainly a fan, and it's been a real treat to watch, especially because, really, there's nothing else. There's no other live sports, so it's not something to look forward to, make you feel normal again, at least for a second. And it's notable to note and important to note that this decision was made right in the fire of these U.S. protests and honestly have now been worldwide protests of police brutality and Black Lives Matter movement overall. At the time when they were deciding and negotiating the bubble rules, there was not an incredibly large, but there was a significant segment of the players, even at that time, particularly Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets, that said we shouldn't play. 
he said, and many others did say, that playing now is just distracting the world from our real problems, particularly their problems that they're focusing on of uh, black liberation and of ending police brutality and overall racism in the country. Some people thought that playing would distract from that. But overall, the consensus among the players was like, no, we'll play, but we'll have these social justice messages on our jerseys. There's social justice messaging allotted every single day to these topics, and they get to wear these shirts. There's these me- there's these slogans on the court and all that. But fast forward to August 23rd, 2020, where Jacob Blake was sadly shot in the back seven times by cops in Kenosha, Kenosha, Wisconsin. In the aftermath of what happened, Many players and coaches provided impassioned speeches in their press conferences, uh, in their usual post-game interviews, speaking on racism and speaking on their experiences and how they felt so just so tired and so saddened by the news. At that time, I think it was the same day or the day after, I found it very interesting to to see one interview by not an absolute A-list star, but definitely a, 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 a player that had some respect in the league, George Hill, from the Milwaukee Bucks, who, when asked about this question, and about the situation, sorry, and actually was asked, what do you think you guys can do? He said, we can't do anything. We're in the bubble. We shouldn't have came here at all. This was a dumb idea, but we're here, so whatever. I'm paraphrasing, but the the tone was the same. He was so tired. He was so, I guess, dissatisfied with what they've done in not electing to cancel the season and instead electing to actually play during this time. You could see that emotion. I remember my radar went off. I'm like, this wasn't, this was very plain and simple that this guy does not want to be here, but he said it out loud so clearly. I feel like that's probably something they've talked about and saying, hey, like, try not to touch on this topic of coming uh, in the bubble as being a negative thing that much. So him doing that was pretty notable. So then a couple days later, and the Milwaukee Bucks, same team of George Hill, also notably the place that's near the shooting, because it's a Wisconsin city, it's about 20 minutes away from their arena, they elected to not play their game against the Orlando Magic. And that sent shockwaves across the sports world. All other sports leagues canceled their games for the next couple days. And at the time, I thought this was the most, this was absolutely brilliant. This was so impactful, courageous of them to do that. And... I expected that, you know, I think the league will probably resume, but I'm hoping it'll be after at least a week or so of really hard negotiations. Because as much as the NBA owners have the money, these are still the players. People don't give a crap about the owners. They come and pay money to watch these players display their immense talents. So I thought they had a lot of leverage here. And I think, honestly... This is the most impactful way to do it versus never playing in the bubble at all. And that's my personal opinion because 
I think just giving not only the fans, but giving the owners what they wanted for a bit, because the bubble's been live for about a month, and then just taking it away and saying, okay, you love this. It actually worked. You actually are going to recoup a lot of money this year. Do you really care about making that money? You better you better go ahead and contribute to these organizations. You better, the owners have a lot of influence. You better call your your legislatures, your politicians that you fund, aka just bribe constantly with thousands of dollars. You better tell them that they better act on this. They better make, enact some real policies. They, they at least, the very least, better charge and arrest these murdering cops in this situation with Jake, Jacob Blake. So I thought they had a decent amount of leverage here to really demand some real concrete, meaningful actions from the owners. But then word comes out the next day or I think the same day that the league is the that some of the players notably two teams out of the 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 remaining teams I think 13 teams decided to completely opt out of the season and that's the Lakers and the Clippers I heard from all reports that they had a players only meeting discussing what to do and it was incredibly heated very understandably was not organized and was just like very emotional and chaotic. And I'm like, okay, canceling the whole season. I mean, selfishly, to be, be put it bluntly, as an NBA fan, I hope I was hoping they could satisfy both, be able to eventually play, but also get the get the social justice uh, movement uh, wins and actually get something out of the owners. But obviously, at the end of the day, I, I wanted what was best for the Black Lives Matter movement and just overall change in, in racism and policies in the United States. So I was thinking, okay, they're really going to go do this. This is incredibly powerful. This is going to be remembered for the, the end of time of sports. But then, but then Thursday reports out they have another meeting and they decide to just still play. And I'm like, okay, this something seems off here because what was the real point like i am not going to minimize even the act of not playing that those games on wednesday and then thursday uh that followed i'm not going to minimize that but i am going to put it in the right context from what i see from my perspective that they successfully striked they had all the leverage and all they did with it was just was spread awareness, which it did, and and made it clear that they were not happy with what things were going. They were making a statement. They did very well. I just thought they could have done a lot more in that position because I have not seen a report since then that showed what demands or that have been met from the players uh, that the owners actually met. I don't. I don't think the owners actually agreed to doing anything new as it relates to any of this situation and i just don't get why i thought if you're gonna come back and play i thought they had the capabilities to at least at the bare minimum get some more money out of these freaking filthy rich millionaires billionaires sorry but i thought they really could have asked them in some formal way to really divert their funds accordingly to maybe senators that are not favorable or not that are racist or whatever or could have just called up some people and really made it a point to pressure them to to enact change in all these politicians that they have in their pocket 
but instead they just gave up their leverage. And I don't blame them because, again, I feel like this discourse is kind of forgetting. These are athletes, 20 to 30 years old, that are just trying to do something that they love and get paid for it. They didn't sign up to be activists. You don't need to be an activist. So I get that. And I also get that there is a real reality because people, a lot of people don't understand from what I've read, they would potentially be losing 30% of their salaries. They would potentially be losing the next season. And now you may think, oh, these guys are so rich. Yes, a lot of them are filthy rich, but a lot of them are making like a million, a couple million a year or even less than that. But they may never make a team again. And then they didn't go to school because they were and really get a real university education because all they did was practice because you don't have time to study really and actually become an NBA player. It's very difficult. So this is it. This is the complete or majority of their life earnings happening right now. Even if that wasn't the case, they still want to play basketball and want to do what they love. And we don't need to treat them incredibly different than any other striking uh, working population. You don't, vic- you don't shame the workers if they are having trouble fulfilling the strike. It depends on the circumstances, obviously. But yeah, I. that being said, though, I still think they had so much more leverage and they just gave it up for no reason. So it, it just seemed a little perplexing. But then in the nick of time, whenever real structural change was going to happen, potentially, here comes Barack Obama. So reports are that he called up LeBron James and other notable NBA figures and told them to play, that their message would be most heard if they continued to play in the bubble. (sighs) I am so done with Obama. I am so done with Obama. What is he doing? Why? Who asked him? Like, it's just unbelievable. This All he's done this year is stop the Bernie movement by calling up every damn corporatist Democratic candidate and tell them, hey, back Biden or else. Like, I don't know what he told them. And then he does this. Because again, I understand, I fully understand there is genuinely valid arguments on both sides to stop playing as a way to saying, you know, that's really going to make the most impact. But then also I understand the validity in in staying in the bubble. I agree. I I will say, though, that I see less validity in that. But I see, you know, the messaging, the constant opportunity to give these guys a platform in front of a microphone and cameras every single day to speak on these things. I understand. And I and I also see that, you know, other than players like LeBron and big A-listers, without the actual NBA season happening, how is it packedful? Is it for Austin Rivers or Tim Hardaway Jr. to do something as it relates to activism for social justice? How 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 impactful is it if he's not on an NBA court or in a post-game presser? I just don't think people are, are checking for, for these guys' opinions that much. The A-listers, megastars, yes, but the rest of the league, I, I'm not so sure. But overall, I think there was just a lot of leverage that was given up for really no reason because I understand the urges to go back to play, the impacts it will have on their future life of their careers, the the livelihood and health of the league. 
I understand and I do to a lesser extent understand the validity and staying in the bubble and how that could propagate a message. But to do it, to come back and play with really no concessions from the owners, that's the part that doesn't sit well with me. That's the part that I just feel like it's a missed opportunity. And overall, I, I don't want to blame them. They didn't they didn't create racism. They aren't directly to blame for any of this stuff, but I do think they are very powerful, very well-off people who could afford to go harder in this strike, to say the least. And I don't think they fulfilled and took advantage of this really unique opportunity. And I'd also add that this is definitely a form of logical fallacy, but the fact that Obama was in favor of immediately resuming the season tells me that resuming the season instead of resuming it with significant demands and a lengthened strike or fully canceling the season makes it clear to me at least that the the players didn't do the best the best thing here. If Obama's in favor of it, then I know that I'm against it. Plain and simple. So I'll end it there. Quickly, you know, I, I know I say I talk about sports on this podcast, but I haven't really done it yet. I will be getting to sports very soon once we get into the next round of the NBA and as the NFL starts. Definitely the NFL starting will be huge because I'm a huge NFL fan. I'm a huge mega fan. So thank you, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate the support. I love doing this, and I can't wait to continue doing more of these episodes of QLC TV moving forward. If you want to follow me, support the podcast, please subscribe on all the podcast channels that you use, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Rovew, so that's R-O-H-V-I-E-W, and shoot me a comment, send me a DM, and feel free to suggest whatever topic you think I should cover, whether it be some political discussion, music, etc., or if you just wanted to send me some feedback about something that you think I should improve on or consider changing as it relates to the show. I'm definitely all ears. I wanted to start this podcast to, to help myself grow, help myself uh, express myself more efficiently, more concisely, more effectively. So I'm always open to anything that I should. I didn't want, whether it be about how I deliver the show or just to criticize some horrible take that I had. I'm all ears. And I'd like to extend an open invitation to anybody who's listening right now who would like to join me in a discussion on any topic of your liking. Just shoot me a DM, post a comment, and I would love to do that because I want to connect with you guys who are listening as much as I can and foster a community. So thank you once again for listening. Peace.